Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Bummy Chronicles podcast. This is your host and producer, Randy Kim. I hope that you are staying safe and well during this COVID-19 crisis. For season two, we are exploring the theme 1975, which is the 45-year anniversary of the end of the Vietnam-Laos Civil War, and also the beginning of the Khmer Rouge in Cambodia. May is also Asian Pacific Islander Heritage Month, which is an opportunity to examine and celebrate the contributions of our Asian communities across the globe. For this week's Season 2, Episode 12 of the podcast, Lao American poet and playwright Saimukta Vongsai, otherwise known as Refugenius, joins me for this episode. Saimukta recently received the prestigious Mellon Grant for her work as a playwright with Theater Mu in the Twin Cities of Minnesota. Born in a Thai refugee camp after her parents escaped from Laos after the Civil War, Saimukta settled in with her family in the Twin Cities. It is where she developed her passion for spoken word poetry. She shared many wonderful stories about her upbringing, the challenges of having to translate for her parents at a young age, and goes into her work as a playwright. We shared so many laughs and reflections throughout this episode. She talked about the importance of what art means in fighting against the growing racism and xenophobia during the COVID-19 pandemic, as well as her recent first visit to Laos. She even shared one of her personal poems for this episode. You won't want to miss this. Hope you enjoy, and please check out more of her work. Also, special thanks to my sponsor, Lawrence and Argyle, a Vietnam-American-owned merchandise line representing immigrant empowerment. Get yourself a pin, hoodie, or t-shirt and show off your immigrant pride. Visit them at www.lawrenceandargyle.com or on Instagram at lawrenceandargyle or on their Facebook page. Hello, everyone. Uh, this is our Randy Kim, uh, host and producer of the Bunby Chronicles podcast. So I am here today with uh, this amazing person. Her name is Saimukta Vongsai. So how are you today? I'm doing incredible, Randy. It's, uh, it's, it's a really good morning for me today. <laughs> that is awesome. So what have you been doing um, uh, so far today that's making you have a wonderful morning? Well, I got to lay in bed all morning. Um, which made me miss a Zoom meeting, but it's okay. I, <laughs> I can always follow up uh, with an email. But um, I, so Theater Moo announced um, that we won a prestigious grant. And so it's, so people are congratulating me and it's, it just feels really good. It just feels good, especially when we're in this pandemic and it's just been such a downer to, you know, everything going on in the world. So. It's just yeah. a little smile, the sunshine in my heart that I'm experiencing. That's, that's wonderful. I'm, I'm so happy for you, Saimukta. And, and you know, this is actually the first interview I've conducted, even though I'm still working on the second season. Uh, this is the first interview that I've conducted since the COVID-19 quarantine time. So it is kind of surreal to, uh, you know, be doing this second season and the attitudes and and the many events that have changed uh, since then and how it's affected our, our own community and our own personal lives. So yeah, it's, it's a really uh, refreshing opportunity or refreshing time to hear wonderful news that are coming out on your end. So that's, that's amazing. So I wanted to uh, start by introducing um, 
by introducing you because uh, I knew about you through a good friend of ours, uh, Peter Limthong Button, I believe. Uh, Peter, I do apologize for butchering your name ahead of time. Uh, but Peter, I've known uh, several years back when he was living in Chicago, and then he uh, works at a university over in Minnesota, and he uh, connected me to you. So uh, definitely a big shout out to Peter for introducing us. And yeah, definitely. What yeah. up, Peter? <laughs> Yeah, and also, I've gotten a chance to learn a little bit more about your work. You've done spoken word. You've uh, been uh, deeply into the arts, especially within the uh, in the Southeast Asian community here. So I wanted to kind of start by giving you the opportunity to uh, introduce yourself. Yeah, so um, thank you. Uh, my name is Saimukta, and a lot of people just call me Mooks just because um, that's my street name. And muk actually means pearl in Lao. And so um, I, I kind of like, like it. It makes me feel a little classy. Um, so I, I am a poet, a playwright, um, installation artist, performance artist. Um, I am a cultural producer. And in some ways, um, I'm, I guess, a teaching artist. And I also um, give consultations to people on whatever, <laughs> like grant writing or cultural competency, things like that. Um, but these days, I mostly work in theater as a playwright or as a dramaturg or cultural consultant. Um, yeah, what else? My work mostly, it mostly centers Southeast Asian and Lao stories um, from former refugees, um, mostly because we don't get to hear a lot of Lao stories in theater on the American stage. And so that has been my focus for the last, um, I want to say, six, seven years. Mm, that's incredible. And I know that there's going to be so much to talk about, and I would like to drop some of your uh, current experiences with, you know, in the theater spaces and also with uh, you as an artist. And you as a person that's been working to uplift the Lao American community um, and also in talking about and reflecting about the refugee migration experience uh, from Laos, which is, uh, which, is a, which is a period that has hardly been talked about when we're talking the framework of the Vietnam War. Uh, most people do forget or do not acknowledge that there was a civil war in Laos that also led to many civilian casualties that led to uh, the many, many numerous bombings uh, from the U.S. that most people do not know about, just like the, uh, the secret bombings of Cambodia, which led to the Khmer Rouge. So there's so much to uncover about that part of history uh, 45 years later. So now we are at the 45-year mark, which was the end of the Vietnam and Laos Civil War, the beginning of the Khmer Rouge, but also the start of the refugee migration journey from Southeast Asians to America or to Australia or to other Western countries, but primarily to America. And I wanted to get your take on, on your perspective. When you hear the year of 1975, what comes to mind? Yeah, I just think of um, the words that come to my head are dis disruption in so many ways um for so many different people right like you know quote unquote the bad side and like the good side and um people who are innocents and people who are civilians people who were soldiers 
um, so just, uh, you know, I think of disruption, I think of exodus, you know, for, I think of like major exodus of like the, the landscape of, of the world just completely changed, right? Like after 75, <clears throat> the world, there's just like hella Southeast Asians everywhere. <laughs> mm-hmm. And it's great. I love it. <laughs> um, but also I don't love it because, you know, of the, the circumstances. Um, but so much of my work has been around what happens in the 80s or what happened like the year before I was born because that's all my parents have talked about. They mm. don't really talk about 90, 95 or 75 or they don't talk about what their life was like before the war disrupted everything. Um, <clears throat> but they do talk about their escape from Vientiane to Thailand and a little bit about their life um, in the refugee camps and the resettlement process, just a tad. But they also talk about the struggles that they faced, um, just trying to, I guess, make a new life in Minnesota. And it was just really tough. So, so those are the things that I think about and I try to excavate in my work, but um, I always find more questions and I can never find the answers, if that makes sense. Mm. I wonder uh, when we talk about the Laos Civil War that happened during uh, the 70, during the 60s to 70s, I was wondering from your perspective and from your own ex- family's experience, when you hear so little about uh, the Laos Civil War in the American history context, how does that affect you and on the, the Lao community uh, that you're in, how does it feel when your history of trauma has been erased and igno- ignored and erased uh, altogether? And how does that, in a way, amplify your urgency to do this uh, work in excavating, as you said, uh, the stories and also the untold, well, the untold stories and um, uncover a lot of the history that has not been told by or heard from through survivors. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so it, it's been disheartening um, that Lao or Lotion stories are not part of public discourse. Like we're not, our stories are not, you know, told on the American stage, um, not in television or film, in books, right? So there's like lack in that. Uh, in in popular culture. And so what we find happening is people who are not from our community um, telling our stories for us, mm. right? And 45 years after all of that shit happened, that shouldn't be the case. We should be the ones telling our own stories. Um, I, I get it if it was like 42 years ago and other people were telling our stories for us or helping us tell our stories. Like, I get it, right? Because we was brand new. But 45 years later, let us take the reins um, and give us the resources and empower us to do that. Mm. Because there are Lao artists out there, um, Lao scholars who are doing that work of... Um, interviewing elders and like survivors and and people who were affected um, and making sure that their stories are preserved and making sure that these lessons are, you know, 
shared um, because our elders are dying, like they're literally dying. Yeah. So there's there's that that urgency of making sure that we honor them by mm. telling their stories. Yeah, thank you for sharing that because as I've talked in previous episodes, uh, the year of 1975, uh, for any adult survivors who say 20 years old and above, they're in retirement age. And a lot of the survivors from that particular era are, as you said, dying, transitioning and falling ill. And so this is a critical time for people in our generation, 1.5 second generation, they're now carrying the torch to uh, uphold the history and to ask these important questions from our elders so we understand our history and so we know what to do with it so we're not going to walk around with question marks for the rest of our lives and not knowing what we're going to pass down to uh younger uh younger southeast asian uh, southeast asian folks yeah uh, moving forward so i think this is a very critical time i think i look back on the legacy of the chinese american railroad workers how a lot Mm -hmm. of their history uh was told by non-chinese folks primarily Mm -hmm. with white americans who took the reins and telling the story, but in a way that did not uh, account for people who yeah. had lived through that experience. Well, not even just um, telling their stories for them, but um, replacing them in photographs, right? When yes. the, I think when one stretch of the railroad was completed, um, all of the Chinese workers were removed and all of these white workers stood in the photograph, right? And so it's mm-hmm. like, there's this complete erasure of their work and their contribution. Um, yeah. their all of this stuff in, in photographs. And so, the hate, and obviously the large scale hate crimes that were happening towards right. them as we see yeah. with indigenous folks. And I think that that is very telling when we have to have the urgency to start reclaiming our history, our mm-hmm. stories, and make sure that it does count and that we're not going to have our own history repeat itself mm-hmm. uh, when we don't even know our own history. So yeah, thank you for sharing that. And I was wondering, um, as you were growing up, um, as you were growing up, your family had escaped from Laos. They had um, been living in a refugee camp. So how did they arrive to Minnesota? Um, a bunch of uh, white people. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we, were, we were sponsored by um, Lutheran Church and a family. Um, I don't remember their name, but I remember them being very kind people and um, meeting us at the airport and all this stuff. Uh, Them giving me a winter coat, because I think when we arrived, it was winter. It was like super cold in November, you know. What year was it and how old were you? 1985. So I was four. I was just maybe like 19 days shy of being four years old. Mm. My birthday is December 24th, right? Um, mm. which to me has no significance as a Buddhist, uh, other than it's my birthday. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, that, that's how we came. And even before we came to Minnesota, um, the, rec- the, the process, I think we went through several refugee camps. Um, yeah. When, uh, when you had arrived um, in America, as a four-year-old, what were your own thoughts of being in America, like as a young child, especially as you were about to enter uh, grade school? 
what was that experience like? What were some of your earliest memories uh, mm -hmm. uh, settling into uh, Minnesota? Mm -hmm. uh, I have one very specific memory. Um, I think it was like my first week in preschool and they put me into Head Start, which was like this, this preschool for like poor people. <laughs> <laughs> and um, I remember being given a little black hair comb and that comb was placed in my back jean pocket. And I don't know who instructed me, but somebody told me when they dropped me off, they said, um, remember to look your best and to like, I guess there was just this idea of if you look your best, you'll feel your best and you'll do your best, right? And so whenever I felt nervous around these like kids that I, I've never interacted with before, because these were black and brown kids too, Asian kids, they were some white kids too. Um, I would take out this hair comb and like start combing my hair mm. so that I would calm myself down and hoping that I'll make friends. Um, we also grew up in Rondo in St. Paul. So Rondo is this historically black neighborhood, right? It was this wonderful cultural hub that was thriving and full of life and full of money and like very, um, just so many families living together in this huge neighborhood. But, you know, when the state built the Highway 94, it went right through the community. And so, so many people were displaced mm -hmm. and were lost, businesses were lost. And um, so that was something that we had in common with um, the black folks in our neighborhood was mm. this sense of loss. And so I do remember being an interpreter for um, my mom and some of our neighbors but then doing such a poor job of interpreting because I'm like six mm. or seven and there's so much that was lost, right? So many important things, words that were said, feelings that were, you know. Um, so I remember being, being that person and just feeling at once, like, why are we not back in Thailand? Thinking, why are we not back at home? Because mm. home was, Thailand, refugee camp, right? Um, but also thinking, what is this place? I guess I'm, we're here now, like, what do I do? I don't know. It's just this weird, awkward feeling of, um, yeah, I, I, I don't know how to describe that feeling. It's, it's very surreal um, because I've heard this with other folks. Uh, in my own generation that to, that we've had to be translators to our parents right. at very young ages, calling mm -hmm. customer service at eight years yeah. old. Oh, yeah. Can I speak to the manager? <laughs> uh, I, I mean, there's a little running joke about that one, but uh, uh, I'll save that for another time. But no, seriously, like when there's so much burden to perform well in school, Mm -hmm. to not be able to hang out with your friends, especially those who are not of our own ethnic descent. There's such a, there's such a heaviness when you have to end up doing the adult work, you know, having to be caught upon 
uh, to talk to a stranger. And I know for a person like myself, I was extremely shy. I was very shy of people and, and you know, to be forced at a young age to talk to strangers about things that I did not understand. I think in my teenage years, I grew very resentful about that because mm -hmm. my parents were, my dad specifically was so hard on me mm -hmm. and, you know, would berate me if I didn't do things right. And then here I am, as I was growing up, I'm like thinking to myself, well, you know what? If you're so smart, then why am I translating things for you? Why am I trying to help you out? So the clash of egos, especially as a teenager, uh, manifested itself. And, and I've heard stories where our own generation grew resentful of that to our own parents. Like we were put in positions that felt unfair to us. And did you carry in a way that resentment of having to uh, take on this adult role of helping your parents? I, I did not actually. Um, I, I, I didn't. I was, I, have, I was made fun of as a young kid, like a lot of the white kids were telling me, oh, that sucks that you have to do that. You shouldn't have to do that. That sucks. But, you know, my parents always said to me, don't think of it that way. Think of you being highly capable. Mm. Because at their age, they probably couldn't do it. But you are here like, and you're doing this. And so you're, you're very capable. Wow. There's power in that, right? Wow. So that's, that's how I grew up um, experiencing having to interpret. And plus, I had power. Like, we would be at parent-teacher conferences, and the teacher would be like, can you tell your mom that you are struggling with reading? And I'd be like, mom, homie says, I'm doing amazing. I'm the best reader in class. <laughs> and so there's power, right? <laughs> You're changing <laughs> the narrative. <laughs> so I wasn't, I didn't feel burdened at all. Um, and I, and, and I, and the thing was, I didn't take up, I didn't do all of that work on my own. There were other people in our community who stepped up and, and took on those roles as interpreters and stuff like that, right? Mm -hmm. um, so that's what that's that's one thing that we felt fortunate to, to have in Minnesota, because um, there's a huge Southeast Asian population here, um, especially in St. Paul, Minneapolis, and the Twin Cities. So, yeah. and I, I, yeah, I'm sorry that um, people grew up feeling that. That's that sucks. That that's yeah. I can I can't imagine that feeling. Um, you know, I, I've heard friends tell me that they felt like their childhood was lost or that a lot of their, they weren't able to just be a child. And, and I get it, right? Um, mm -hmm. We wear so many hats as new Americans, as former refugees, like what can we do, you know? I think, I think it's so uh, powerful that your parents really instilled this confidence in you that, that there is power in helping them and that it helps you as a person to navigate these challenges and knowing that you had to navigate the uncertainty, the lack of resources mm -hmm. that your parents were given. Uh, oh, yeah. my, my, my dad was a, an, an ex-gangbanger in Laos. You know, he was, he was riding buffaloes, doing drive-bys. <laughs> <Okay>. um, <laughs> I, I have to get a visual of that. <laughs> and my mom, you know, she was aristocracy so she had this air about her and so the two of them made this guy that was just like this six-year-old bad bitch um <laughs> <laughs> i love it <laughs> um you know but that didn't that didn't mean i didn't have issues with bullying and 
having some low self-esteem later on in life. <laughs> yeah. But, but I had tuberculosis. Mm. Oh. And so I was wondering, like, as you were growing up um, into your teenage years, what was your own experience uh, like, you know, navigating in the school that you were in uh, as you were trying to negotiate between, you know, working or preserving uh, your family's culture and, you know, being connected to the community, but then, you know, being in school that there's a sense of, okay, well, I also have to assimilate. I have to be better in English. I have to start focusing on college. So what was that experience like having to negotiate between these two different worlds? Um, so growing up, we, um, we only spoke Lao or Thai in the house. Those were the only two languages that was like dominant. And I'm thankful that my parents did that because we were able to grow up speaking Lao, speaking Thai, able to talk to our elders. Um, my Lao is not as fluent as it used to be, mostly because I went off to college and I forgot hella shit. Like mm. I just started forgetting words. Um, like for a long time, I was trying to remember the word for construction, right? Which is like kosang, right? And so I was like trying to remember, and now that I know it, I'm not gonna let it go. It's one of those mm. things. Um, so I, re I remember just, um, yeah, I'm, I'm glad that that happened in our household. Um, and I knew at a young age, because I am Asian presenting, I did feel othered by people in my school. Um, and in elementary school, I actually had just one friend. Mm. She was my best friend, right? Her name was Anne. And I have this picture of us together. Um, I think the teacher took it and it was us sitting together learning consonants or vowels or something like that. And um, I found her on Facebook I think maybe six years ago and mm. I'm just so happy that I found her but we haven't like hung out which is odd mm. so I, I need to do that um I also remember a time when my mom stopped packing Lao and Thai food for us in our lunch boxes mm. she used to do that and the next day all I knew was we only had Capri Sun and a bag of chips in our lunch boxes mm. um and later on, I found out that my brother was being bullied for his stinky Asian food. And oh. so my mom and she stopped making the Lao food for us. Right. Mm. So there was that there's all these like little instances that reminded you of your otherness. Um, but at the same time, when we left that world, we went to our own safer space world, which was full of Southeast Asians and all that stuff. Um, in our project and so I grew up with um, Hmong kids and black kids mostly all of the Lao people lived in Minneapolis and so we were separated <laughs> from our Lao community in that way um, so I didn't grow up around a lot of Lao people um, but I never felt like I wasn't Lao enough or Asian enough Mm. I was always reminded of that at home. Um, there was never a time when I had to, I had to find my loudness. It was just always there. 
Mm. Does that make sense? Yeah. Um, I mean, look at my name. My name is Lao as fuck, right? It's like hella Lao. And when I got my citizenship, they asked me if I did want to change it. I was like, no, why would I change my name? That's ridiculous. Um, and even when I got married, I didn't change my name because this is, this is the name people know me as. Why would I change it? Mm. It's, um, yeah. It's powerful, um, especially with the name that we carry. Like, my name is Randy Kim, which obviously does not have any, it, in hindsight, it does not have any connections to the Vietnamese and Khmer uh, connection. And it was a struggle growing up with a last name that my dad had to inherit, and not mm -hmm. by choice when he came to America. And Randy was supposed to be named uh, Radi, R-A-D-Y, mm -hmm. uh, which I would have preferred, but I think uh, he changed it at the last minute because he thought that um, my yeah. future classmates would not get it. And yeah. lo and behold, I would grow up in a very white suburban community outside of Chicago. Uh, and I was already struggling as it is trying to navigate this difficult uh, journey as a shy kid who really mm -hmm. couldn't speak English, who really couldn't uh, make meaningful friendships. And to hear you t talk about the power of your name, that's like, it's, it's powerful. It's a way to reclaim, this is my Lao identity. I'm not letting that one go. I'm not going to, uh, to uh, whitewash it. I'm not going to, you know, sanitize it for people's comfort, right? Mm -hmm. and, and I was wondering, like, you know, as you were getting older, uh, you started getting into the arts, you started getting into writing. And I was wondering what led you to use that as your uh, main outlet? Mm -hmm. I think I've always been a storyteller or liar, as my parents said. <laughs> um, I prefer storyteller. Um, I was always fabricating stories as a kid and, you know, just making up stuff and, and, living in my own little world. I used to pretend I was an animal. I played a game called animal by myself. And I would just go to adults and be like, give me an animal. And they're like, gopher. And I'll just pretend to be a gopher for like the day, you know, just living in my own imagination. But I'm fortunate because I also have people in my family who are artists. There are people who are textile artists, um, musicians, singers, there are writers. You know, we have visual artists, which is cool. And so I was always surrounded by art making and artists and creative people. Um, and I guess growing up as Southeast Asian refugee, especially Lao people, I think the only expectation my parents had for me was don't get pregnant and don't join a gang. So as long <laughs> as you don't do those two, you're good, you're golden, right? You don't even care if you don't go to college, whatever. <laughs> um, so I also, I kind of had that freedom to just do whatever I wanted, mostly. Um, I actually didn't even know if I wanted to be an artist full time or to pursue it as a career at first um, because people would tell me that I would have an empty stomach as an adult, right? Mm. Arts. Um, but I, I seem to be doing okay. That's wonderful. And 
you also came up with the name, uh, yes. alias name, Refugenius, which right. I think is an amazing name. Thank you. And I was wondering where did that origins come? I can only speculate what uh -huh. that name means, but I was wondering your own interpretation of that name and what that name holds for you. Yeah, so the, the name is a portmanteau of um, refugee and genius, right? Like, um, so I, I told you the story of how I was getting high with some friends. <laughs> and um, this name was just like, hello, you know. So we were talking about claiming spaces, right? Claiming just labels and identities for ourselves. Um, growing up, there's just this, there's, there have been negative connotations of the word refugee. Um, people associated it with burden or victim or whatever, just nasty connotations. And to be able to take that back and to say, no, this actually, refugee means resilience and hope and strength and all this other shit, right? Good shit, good shit. <laughs> and so, um, and my friend was like, man, you smart, man. You, you, you one of the smartest motherfuckers I know, man. You're like a fucking genius, man. Some of the And so I was like, yeah, I'm like a genius. I'm a refugee genius. And I was like, refugee genius. Um, Can we stab my fingers? <laughs> yeah. So I want to just give a shout out to um, Ecstasy uh, for coming up with, <laughs> with that. <laughs> <laughs> I'm kidding, I'm kidding. Um, but also I'm not so it has been this um, refugeenius isn't just um, a name that I am claiming it's also like a state of being and just um, an aesthetic a way of moving in the world um, yeah when your parents started hearing your poetry, what was their reaction? How supportive were they when you started sharing stories about your experience, but really your family's experience from Escape? Mm -hmm. I think the first poem they heard me read was about oranges or some shit. And I know they were looking at me like, what the fuck? <laughs> <laughs> they were like, please don't pursue the arts. Um, <laughs> but <laughs> um, I, I, you know, I, I read this, this poem to my, uh, a poem about finding home and being afraid of drowning um, to my mom and my dad, I think a few years ago. And they, I think they, they were very moved. I think my dad cried mm. as he was translating it for my mom. Um, because there are some words in Lao that I don't know how to translate from English and back and forth, right? Um, I think they were just very proud that they were, that their story was being honored in that way and that it was published in the thick anthology that thought that was fancy and cool. Um, <laughs> the, one of the challenges that I face as a Lao poet writing about Lao stories um, and aiming to connect with the Lao community is that I often do get invited to Lao spaces, like Lao celebrations, things like that. And I would perform, like they'll ask me to perform, like they're specifically asking me to come and read that poem mm. for the OGs, right? Except when it's, when I do get on the stage and I get on the mic and I start reading the poem and the OGs are like, 
they don't even really, they know that I'm on stage, but they're not really hearing the poem. Mm. Um, because they're, they're, you know, they're passing around Hennessy and they're like talking and just, I mean, that's how we row. I'm not even mad about it. Um, Cause I still got paid, but that's, that was one of the frustrations with um, stuff like that. And that's not at every gathering. It's just when the OGs are there and there's Hennessy. When you started uh, uh, performing in other Lao spaces, what was your connection like with uh, Lao, working with other Lao poets? What did you find has been the most uh, powerful in your connection with them? Yeah. Yeah. Um, there's no need to interpret and there's no need to go deep in explanation or they just get it, right? Um, we laugh at ourselves for not being fluent enough. We laugh at ourselves for having American-ish names. You know, we laugh at ourselves for having hella loud names. Um, we, for so long, were working in isolation in our own silos. Um, and we didn't know how to find each other. We didn't know that each other existed. Mm -hmm. And thankful for the internet and AsianAvenue.com, um, so many of us found each other, right? I think a lot of us just started typing in like Lao girl and then see what <laughs> pops up or like Lao boy and then trying to see which one of us are writers. <laughs> wow. I think that's how what me and uh, myself and Katsy Villapon from Philadelphia found each other was actually through AsianAvenue.com. Mm. Um, she was doing spoken word poetry and I was a poet at the time. And I just, I, I admired her work and was following her career, you know, and she co-founded Yellow Rage and they did a performance on Deaf Poetry Jam and, that, and mm. that was amazing. It blew my mind. I felt so seen, seeing her um, perform into this massive audience, this institution that is run by Russell Simmons, right? Um, we started Another Lao writer, uh, so Katsi, myself, and Brian Talwara started a, um, I guess, a collective. We, we convened uh, the Lao American Writer Summit in Minneapolis back in 2010. Um, we basically Googled, Googled Lao writer and found people and wrote grants and got money and flew 30 people into mm. Minneapolis for a summit just to connect and to learn about each other's work and to learn how we can help each other um that we can share and like best practice like what are you writing about why are you writing about that and and all that stuff um and so to this day we've had i think five summits across the nation san diego seattle um and we're gonna this summer is gonna we're gonna have it in philadelphia well, we'll see because of COVID. We'll right. See. <laughs> we'll see. Um, but that community has been invaluable. Like that community, I have no words for how much more value I have in my life because of this community of writers and, and storytellers. They're not just writers. I mean, they, they're visual artists too. They're filmmakers, songwriters. Um, yeah. That's incredible. I really appreciate you sharing uh, that connection with me. 
I was wondering if you were able to read one of your uh, poems that you wrote. Yeah, let me. And give us a quick uh, synopsis of what that poem was and, and also how you came to creating that work. Yes. Um, so uh, this poem is actually about my, my parents' journey from Vientiane, um, Laos to Thailand, the shores of Thailand. And my mom was actually pregnant with me um, when they crossed. And so this is, this, it's a re, an imagining of this. My mom has brought it up, but she never went into it, right? Mm -hmm. um, so this was me imagining what happened. And it was actually prompted by um, an installation at the Soap Factory, which is this gallery space in Minneapolis. It was, it's like a giant warehouse and it's like hella grungy and it's great. But um, the installation artist uh, is Clive Murphy, and he had this, this, this thing where he was going to do everything using plastic bags. And so plastic bags, um, that was the prompt that I had to create this, this poem. And it, it, it went through like maybe four or five drafts before I felt like it was ready for the public. <laughs> so, um, so this poem is called um, Afraid of Drowning. Mother said they already knew that the communist soldiers were on their way to her father's house because he was a provincial governor. He was one of the first on their list. They had many lists. My mother never told me more than that, stopping when the flooding of memories slowed her breathing. So the stories I don't know, I imagine. I imagine I was in my mother's belly when they, they were heading toward the river. My brother was about a year and a half. They said he was a good baby, never cried. They didn't drug him with opium as the others had been. And he mostly slept, carried by my father. Some of the children never woke up and were buried along the way like breadcrumbs in a fucked up fairy tale, reminding them how to find their homes again. I felt my mother's heart begin to pump fast when they reached the river. Instinctively, I reached upwards and massaged it with my translucent hands. She never learned how to swim, having been raised in the city, not like my father who was raised in the countryside and he has swum this river before so he wasn't afraid. He's never afraid. Even when he trekked the dirt road of his parents to ask for my mother's hand in marriage, even when everyone on both sides said it was a bad idea. A country bumpkin and a governor's daughter. But here they are, everyone from both sides, standing in front of the river, escaping to the same place. Mother said some brought plastic bags to help them cross the river because they couldn't swim. So, along the shore, on the Lao side, husbands inflated bags as best they could for their wives, who carried their babies on tired backs, dotted in the muddy river, black heads bobbing, black plastic bags keeping black heads above water. Sometimes people didn't make it across and got taken away by the current but still they held on to their bags, afraid of drowning. Some husbands gave themselves to the unsympathetic river to help their wives. Some blamed themselves for not inflating the bags better. But along the shore on the Thailand side, 
Husbands hugged the ones that made it, while others fell on their knees with grief. My father didn't have a plastic bag. He swam my mother across, my brother tied high on his back, and me, still in her belly, massaging her heart with my hands. Mm. Beautiful. Thank you. It's beautiful. And thank you so much for sharing such a intimate, um, I'm kind of at a loss for words uh, because the refugee experience, the escape is very nonlinear, but the stakes are so high and how, what we do to survive in your parents' case, this was their experience. And when you survive, it's a miracle. How was I chosen to continue despite all the odds that were against me? And when it looked certain as if we were meant to die because everything was pointing in that direction with the bullseye saying that you're not going to live. But to defy that, it's it's incredibly mind-blowing. Mm-hmm. And just thinking of what do you do once you survive after going through that experience? How do you live life after this? You know, what do you do with that experience? And I think that a lot of our refugees years later still find themselves asking those questions. Mm-hmm. How did I survive? Why was I meant to survive? Why was this person uh, that was part of my journey not there with me? When they feel like they were smarter, they were more prepared or more agile. So it's, it's, it's something that, we'll, that we have not uncovered enough of these stories because this was their survival. This was how, the way that they had to survive. And, you know, and, and even in the Thai refugee camps, uh, most people don't know that they were in also hostile environments for a lot of our refugees. I mean, there was a lot of assault, mm-hmm. rapes, um, beatings that have happened, illnesses, uh, where many folks have also died under those conditions. So we're seeing this happen yet again, you know, in America and places in Europe where we're seeing a lot of the abuses that have happened towards refugees who are already escaping a very abusive, toxic environments. So it kind of goes to tell you where that trauma continues to lead on. And we see this happen so much in all of our communities that it still touches us even for people like us who have not physically lived through that experience. Um, We inherit a lot of our parents' trauma and how they project their trauma onto us is how we project it onto them or to other folks and to uh, subsequent generations. So thank you so much for sharing that beautiful poem. And, you know, moving from your spoken word in your writing, you've also gotten involved with um, playwriting and you've gotten involved with theater. And I was wondering, (laughs) how do you make that transition and what have you been, and I know you have touched up on that earlier uh, at the beginning, but I was wondering if you were able, if you're able to explain uh, that transition from going into poetry into uh, theater. Yeah, um, I guess I guess you could say that I had stories in me that wanted to live in other ways. They wanted to live as plays or short stories or essays or whatever, right? And so 
Um, you can't force them to be what they don't want to be. Um, I think in 2009 or 2010, I was invited by a group of um, playwrights of color at the Playwrights Center. So a couple people were fellows at the time and they were, they were in Minnesota from out of town. They just received this wonderful fellowship from the Playwrights Center and they wanted to create a space for um, playwrights of color. And a friend of mine, my BFF, um, Li Yang, she was part of that collective already. And she asked me if I wanted to join. And I said, well, I don't really, um, I've never written a damn play in my life. So I, I would feel weird being called an emerging playwright. <laughs> and she was like, bitch, who cares? Just join. I was like, all right. <laughs> um, so I did. And <clears throat> And I'm, I'm really glad that I did because I found this other medium for my stories to, to unfold. Um, and I have been, been enjoying like the, the worlds that I have been able to create in my plays. Um, and then a couple years later, Rick Shiomi, who was the artistic director of Theater Moo at the time, um, saw one of my flash plays presented at the Playwright Center and he was like, are you interested in furthering, uh, uh, further developing th that play? Mm. And I was like, yeah, what does that mean? And he was like, it means we give you money and then you write it. And I was like, oh, okay, there's money, <laughs> there's money in this? Um, because for so long as a spoken word poet, I was doing like a hundred shows in like a year. And wow paid for any of those things right and so I was like what there's money in theater this is what's up <laughs> um, and and yeah so I you know the 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 unit collective of emerging playwrights of color brought me into theater world but it was Rick Shiomi and Theater Moo that um, really helped me hone my craft as a playwright Mm. Um, they gave me, they took a major risk by producing my first play, first full-length play called Kung Fu Zombies versus Cannibals. And I think it, it, it really paid off for them. It became their highest grossing world premiere. Wow. Um, they had like, I think they sold out every show except maybe like a few shows where, you know, four seats weren't sold per show or something like that. Mm. Um, student ticket sales were off the roof. They sold so many student tickets and, um, and people from different communities were coming, like Lao people were coming, Southeast Asians, um, hip hop heads were coming to the show. Wow. And, and, that, and the hip hop people were not a demographic that they have had before, right? Mm -hmm. So they was like, what? I mean, I had, I had a living legend DJing live during my play. So his fans were coming to wow um i'm also married to him so he, he, didn't, he didn't that helps <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> so um but i i really love theater i love how we can create worlds and it's live and there's interaction and and the audience you could see their visceral um like visceral like react like you could see it like me watching them watching the thing I just love that. I love that I'm able to convene all types of people into a space to share this one story and different people accessing it in different ways, you know? 
some people really were into the music. Some were really into the dirty loud jokes. Some people were really into the Kung Fu and, and the sci-fi of it all and the horror and, and the fact that it talked about um, the undocumented war in Laos, right? Like all of these different things, um, bringing people into like this little, mm -hmm. this world together. I wish I could see that play. And it must have felt cathartic to watch your own writing being performed by actors and to see it come alive. Yeah, it was like your it was, own imagination you know, to have your own imagination come into fruition. Yeah, it was dope. I was, you know, when I was writing it, I was like, you know, I really want to see a decapitation on stage. And then I saw the designers looked at each other like, well, how the fuck are we going to make that happen? <laughs> And the director, Randy Reyes, was like, we're going to make it happen. You just write whatever the fuck you want. And I was like, wow. I bet. And so I did that. Um, yeah, it's the, the collaborative nature of it all is one of my favorite things, too. Like, yes, I go off and I write this thing. But my favorite part is coming in and sitting at a table with the um, creative team and seeing how they're interpreting this thing that I wrote. Um, and then trusting them to, to bring it to life on its feet. And are you currently working? I know like right now with the pandemic, uh, which has definitely hampered a lot of theaters across the US and around the world uh, for that matter, but are you currently working on any plays? I, I am, yes. Um, so I just, we just announced today that um, Theater Moo and I received a Andrew W. Mellon Foundation mm -hmm. um, fellowship or grant I don't know what it is it's, it's one of those but it's this it's it's an incredible honor it's pretty prestigious I guess um basically I'll be a national playwright in residence at Theater Moo and we'll be spending the next three years embedded in Theater Moo writing plays and so that's great uh so I have for the last couple of years I have been fundraising and um, developing a musical called In the Camps, a refugee musical. Um, it's supposed to be fun. It's not supposed to be depressing. But basically, it's about a bunch of refugees in a camp waiting to get resettle, um, resettlement approval. And just shit happens in the camp. Like, everyday life shit happening. And they sing about it. And they dance. And they tell ghost stories and stuff like that. Um, so I'm working on that. I'm also writing uh, the prequel to Kung Fu Zombies versus Cannibals called mm -hmm. Kung Fu Zombies versus Shaman Warrior, mm -hmm. which addresses or examines um, mental health and mental illness in um, the Lao community. So often, so many of us view it as demonic possession or like, this is, this is your bad karma, or this, mm -hmm. your family was cursed, that's why you have, you know, schizophrenia or whatever, right? Mm -hmm. um, and so it's examining that, um, so I'm working on that. Um, I'm also writing, uh, I got a couple of commissions. And so I, from one from Climb Theater and one from the Immigration History Research Center. Um, so I'll be working on those, those plays as well. Mm. That's incredible because you bring up uh, a point that, I, uh, that you just brought up now. Uh, I know for like a lot of Cambodian refugee survivors, one of the conversations that I had with someone control who is also another artist over in Northwest Arkansas, she was on my episode. Um, yeah. She talked about how um, there was this 
immense guilt from the survivors feeling that they were to be blamed for the genocide. Like they did something horrible in their past lifetime to deserve it. Mm. And we talk about that mental health aspect here. And that's very telling, you know, this guilt that you carry through with the beliefs and Buddhism beliefs that you did something horrible to deserve this genocide, Mm. Um, not just, and to survive and to see the loss of family members in such violent ways. So, yeah, I'm very curious to see what angle you're taking with this and how you process it. Because I know that for our community members who have survived, um, mm-hmm. that guilt is clearly still there. And mm-hmm. that thought process, like, what do I do to make my next lifetime better? Yeah, I, I've been working on um, Kung Fu Zombies versus Shaman Warrior since 2015. and Just being very um, careful with it. I don't want to sensationalize this right? Mm -hmm. I have people in my family who are living daily with mental illnesses. Um, You know, I think my mom for a while, yeah, she was depressed and she had anxiety and all this other stuff. Um, It's a taboo in our community. We don't talk about it, right? People are not given the respect that they deserve. Um, People who are experiencing it, I don't, I don't, there's no one that I know that's Lao that has gone to therapy or is seeking counseling or anything like that. Mm. Um, And I don't know why there's a hesitation. I I honestly do not know because every time that I've asked someone that's Lao that question, um, have you thought of, would you want to do this? Do you think it could help? they would say, no, it's, it's a waste of time, or I don't think I need it. It's, it's always those type of answers. Um, and I think the concept of, like, Western therapy is also yeah. clearly um, clearly a barrier, because, I mean, you're talking about language, you're also talking about having a non-Lao person, especially if it's not within your own community, uh, confiding uh, with them about your own experience is something that they have n- they have no understanding of, mm-hmm. no lived experience. So I, I I can definitely see that also being a barrier to that, um, and and also how can mental health be presented in a way that is also connected to our own culture, other forms of healing. You know, whether it's through music, whether it's through the mm-hmm. arts. How do you incorporate that to? Um, build an environment that allows our survivors to unpack uh, their trauma and to find a way to navigate process uh, the heavy luggage that they've been carrying for so many years. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I feel like you as an artist, there's a responsibility to create these outlets for people to stop and to recognize and to be affirmed in their own experiences and not only be affirmed but to be loved you know for not only surviving but for being able to still build a community yeah right mm-hmm. um so speaking of the healing and healing work that art can also provide i was thinking very heavily about the covid-19 crisis the pandemic that has you know terrorized our asian communities in general now, I know for myself, you know, within the past month since March, 
I find it so triggering to be reading stories about an Asian, an older Asian woman getting attacked, um, seeing a YouTube video that's going viral about an Asian man getting sprayed, or mm-hmm. hearing the violent acts that have been performed by not just white pe- folks, but also with other PLC folks. And I think that is, it's disheartening, it's very distressing. And we also see that within our own communities where there's a lot of anti-Chinese uh, sentiments that are going on. You know, I've seen movements that have said, well, um, I'm going to make this up, but like, well, I'm not Chinese, you know, and, and yeah. it feels like a statement, it's yeah. like, well, you know, don't pick on me because I'm the wrong, I'm right. not that kind of Asian. So we're also seeing a lot of the, um, yeah. a lot of the, a lot of the uh, divisions happening from also within our communities. So as an artist, how do you, see your art as a way to navigate this challenging period that we're living in through the pandemic? How can we use that important tool to guide us in our healing, but also to strengthen our solidarity uh, with our own community to fight against white supremacy, to fight against the anti-Asianists, and to uh, also, uh, also, uh, unify with other uh, POC communities who've also experienced uh, violence in white supremacy forum and what have you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I think as an artist, like the only thing, not the only thing, but my gifts and what my gifts and talents allow me to do or to do it the best way is to just write about it or to tell stories about what's happening in my community you know I feel like I'm more than just some playwright or just some poet I'm in many ways a creative documentarian for my communities for our communities right um that's the only way that I can see my role in this there's a part of me that really wants to get vigilante like there's the Charles Bronson death wish part of me that wants to go with out there with a baseball bat and just like fuck shit up, right? Just going, I wish somebody, I wish somebody would, because I have so much pent up anger from so many years of microaggressions and like discrimination. Um, you know, the frustration with this invisibility, right? Um, some friends and I are having discussions offline about this and our frustrations with people within our own community throwing ourselves under the bus and thinking that's how you do allyship or like solidarity with other communities, right? You know, somebody made a post, um, one of my friends, Facebook friends and friends in real life made a post about, this is what Asians deserve now because we have been ignoring um, what black people are going through. And for me, that just not, it didn't sit very well. I just got really upset by that. I didn't want us to diminish our own experiences and struggles um, to uplift another community's, to highlight their own struggles, right? Like, like that's not how you do that. So instead of let's just, let's talk about what's affecting us and how can we, you know, ask for help or how can we help each other? Like, that's the way to go about it, right? Um, so I think I feel like I'll like write stuff and 
get people to have conversations. Um, I use humor a lot. You know, I co-founded the Funny Asian Women Collective for a reason. It's for us to use humor to navigate the uncomfortable, difficult shit, right? Um, let's laugh at ourselves. Let's put up a mirror and let's laugh at, at the ridiculousness of ourselves. You know, this is, it's, we're complicated. We're human, we're complicated. And so let's, let's do that. And I think about um, when you said the word diminish ourselves in the process of seeking allyship, I also think it's very important to us as a, as a greater Asian American collective community is um, let's also look back on our own work and our mm -hmm. own history uh, right. of people who have led the way for us, who have been a part of helping to repeal the Chinese Exclusion Act, who've been fighting to liberate uh, the Japanese Americans who were under incarceration. Uh, we look at folks like Grace Lee Boggs and, and people who have worked with other uh, Black communities mm -hmm. to build solidarity. And I look at people like Helen Zia, I look at those folks that have created the blueprint for us to use, especially in times like these when we are dealing with the histories of racism. Because the pandemic, I, you know, all, the pandemic, as horrible as it is for our own community, it's also not new to us. Right. We've experienced it in different waves. You know, we look at Vincent Chen's murder in 1981 in Detroit. Um, we look at the KKK who were terrorizing Southeast Asian communities in the South where they were also resettling. Uh, we see this happen time and time in our history in that we need to look back on them as a frame of reference, but also to think about how have we as a community uh, resisted against uh, these mm -hmm. forms of violence and how can we use it to aid in this uh, current time that we're living in? How do we uplift each other? Um, how do we ask for solidarity? What are better ways can we be effective at supporting uh, other movements that are affecting our communities? And yeah, I, I, I do think that this is a very important time to ask ourselves these questions, but how can we use our own art, our own way of of uh, community building to work through this. And yeah, I I think right now it's, it's so easy to have that mentality, as you mentioned, to feel this righteous anger and you want to like find ways to be violent about it. It's like, you know, I just want to take that baseball bat and just, you know, you know, stick my middle finger up. And, and while that can really bring up these important, you know, points that, yeah, you can't be messing with us, uh, but how can we try to protect our own community without depleting ourselves in the whole uh, right. process? So yeah, thank you for sharing that. Uh, and I hope that you've also been uh, doing as well as you can, especially given those times. And have you been also talking with other community members? Because um, I know that that's been kind of a struggle. I know that there's been some recent reports of, you know, hate crimes over in Minnesota. Yeah, uh, I think a story that made the news was a Hmong family received um, notices on their doors, on their property, telling them yes. to go, go home and calling them Chinese. Like, what the fuck? That's, you know, racists will be racist and they're going to be ignorant and not do their homework. Um, but I really feel like 
I, I, like for me, public school like failed me in terms of curriculum. You know, there was no Asian American history taught. It should have been taught, um, but there was like no month to do that. Like we didn't, we didn't really have a month in school. We had a month nationally, right? Like it got signed in the nineties, um, but yeah, I think I think we need to learn more about each other's histories. Like I yeah. think we need to do that, not just like for the month and be the flavor of the month, but throughout. Yeah, the year. I mean, you can't cover the entire experience no. in one month, obviously. And the Asian American experience is not some one monolithic experience. It's so varied. I mean, I mean, I, I don't even want to get into the different layers, but there's so much to uncover if you're dealing with. Asia America as a whole. I mean, the whole continent of Asia is filled with billions of people here. So yeah. to dissect the part of their history requires a lot more than a month. But I think what is very important is where we are at in America. How do we connect to each other? What commonalities do we share in this journey? You know, being in America, being as 1.5 second generations, what do we share with our parents who came to the U.S. or grandparents and and what do we do together to write our own history you know moving forward so uh, I thank you so much for uh, sharing that now as we're starting to kind of uh, wrap up soon I wanted to ask you a question so if you were to ask your six-year-old self mm -hmm. what would you tell that six-year-old self ask or tell or I would say my bad. Let me reframe that. <laughs> what will you tell uh -huh. your six-year-old self? Mm -hmm. I mean, I mean, if you were going to ask your six-year-old self, I'm like thinking another translation. <laughs> mm -hmm. No. Um, yeah, I. I would tell my six-year-old self, don't dwell on the fact that you don't see Asian or Lao people in popular culture look at the people in your immediate life who are doing amazing things. They're your role models. Um, look to them. Um, I think that's, yeah. And, and then like the PS of that would be like, you're a bad bitch. You're a bad little six-year-old bitch. Like, yeah. get, get it. Um, <laughs> I think, I don't know. It's, it would be more than one thing. It would just be like a whole, jar of like fun little things that they could my little six-year-old self would pull out and read you know like every once in a while when she feels down um ask for help um go for it anyways or you know just yeah i don't know mm -hmm. and what oh and one thing I did forget to ask you, and I think this is very important, uh, you recently went to Laos. I did. Yeah, and I was wondering, this was your first time, am I uh, correct? Yes, if this was your first time. Yes. And how did that come about and what was that process like for you to come back uh, to a family homeland, a place that you've never been to? Yeah, I, um, you know, I, I've always wanted to go to Laos ever since I was young because that's all my parents talked about, right? And so you have this connection, not be, not through them, but also like through stories, just just stories. 
And I remember getting cassette tapes from family members in Laos and hearing their voices on cassette tapes. Mm. And then us recording over those cassette tapes and sending those back. Right. So it was like wow. this, you know, when we couldn't find cassette tapes. Like <laughs> so there was there's like the voices, the the stories that were being that were coming from Laos into my ears, into my heart and all this other stuff. Um but really the the reason why I like put my foot down and was like I need to go to Laos was because I was working on the musical in the camps, the refugee musical. Mm. Um, because in 2017, I received a grant um, to to develop the musical, right? So they were like, "Here's thirty thousand dollars, make the musical." And I was like, "Okay, but I need I need to I need more money." And I actually applied for some grants, and I got a grant from the Jerome Foundation, and also a grant from the Metropolitan Regional Arts Council. Um, so with this ten thousand dollars, I went to Southeast Asia. And I was supposed to go with my dad, but you know, at the time my mom was really, really sick. Um, her cancer got worse. And so he decided to stay back with her. And I went on my own um, and I met my dad's side of the family for the first time on my own. And it was just so many emotions. I just, it felt so what it should be it also felt surreal mm. at the same time it was also i was by myself i didn't have anyone to process with what just happened every day like at the end of the day when i went back to my loft i was like i have no one to talk to to process this like this is so sucks yeah <laughs> but also i'm here and i feel so privileged and honored that i'm here um and one of the stories that my uncle told me was about a letter that he got from my dad. And the, the letter said, you know, basically the letter was like, pawn, brother is at um, the Capitol. Please make sure when you come to the Capitol that you go to mother's house and get the dishes. The dishes and the spoons are left where she left them, oh. right? And we will be here until the blah, 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 moon, whatever. Um, because we are going to go to this other city to take this other class or whatever. Mm. And all of that was like coded, right? Mm. Mother's dishes and spoons were code for gold and like whatever, right? Jewels, whatever. Um, come to the capital was come at this time because this is when we're escaping. Mm -hmm. um, so, and my uncle said he, he kept that letter for a long time and for a long mm. time was mad at my dad. Um, for escaping without him, for not waiting longer, for for mm. not encouraging him more to come, to not be braver. Like all of these feelings he was feeling, he was telling me. And I couldn't help it, but I was just like bawling the entire time. Yeah. And he just had this thing about him. He was like, why are you crying? It, it was a long time ago. Like, get over it. Like, I'm over it. <laughs> and I was like, what? This is the first time I'm here. It's kind of our way of uh, handling our own mental health, you know? It's like, okay, let bygones be bygones. Nope, nothing to talk about. <laughs> and then he, like, poured me, like, rice wine. I was like, let's drink. And I'm like, all right. <laughs> um, so I will always remember that and just being so well taken care of while I was there by my dad's family and also, you know, my family and also my mom's side of the family, which mm -hmm. is my family. Um, 
and and I want to return. I want to return, and that's the first time I'll be able to say that to say that I'm returning. Wow. I've never put in Laos. I have been calling myself a motherland orphan for a long time. It was just this term that I made for myself to better understand my situation, which was never born there, was not born in Laos, but I'm tethered to it because of stories, because of the language and the traditions, my mm -hmm. family. Um, so I can't wait to return. I can't wait for you to return too. And it's come with me. I would we'll love go. to. I would love to also visit Cambodia. I've only visited Vietnam like a decade ago, and yeah. that was also very cathartic. It was very powerful to see people that you've never met in your life, and you know, understand the roots of our family's pain, but also the roots of our family's tradition and their home, which mm -hmm. has been for a long period of time. I don't know how long mine goes back to. I have yet to visit Cambodia and that was a place that my father escaped from. And so to me, that's, it's hard for me to go in there because I have no one else to visit mm -hmm. in Cambodia because a lot of them were murdered. And so that it's hard to go into a place where I have no way of being able to mourn loved ones, you know, that my dad lost. And that's, that's very powerful because I see a lot of my friends going into Cambodia on vacations and I have very difficult feelings about that when I mm -hmm. see it because that was a place that housed so much trauma for my dad and you know obviously it carried through to me and my brothers and we had mm -hmm. to inherit a lot of the abuse and the the challenges of him trying to reconcile or struggling to reconcile with that. But I know one day I would like to be able to make that visit. Um, but I would love to visit Laos personally. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of places I would love to visit, but certainly Southeast Asia, I have a, I have a big heart for. And, uh, you know, doing the second season, I've learned so many wonderful stories, including yours today. And I'm just so honored and so privileged for you to share your life your work and you know your family's uh history and yeah i really want to say thank you so much for um bringing that to the surface and doing the work that you're doing to uplift other uh younger folks and especially among lao southeast asian uh community folks who are trying to better themselves who are trying to understand their history so that's pretty amazing Wow, I mean, look at you. You're the one creating this platform for all of us to gather in this way oh. and to like tell our stories. Look at you. I mean, I'm honored that you're, that you, oh my God. I'm honored too. I'm, I'm What? I'm huh? honored because, because I mean, I've heard a lot about your work too. And, and I like to meet other people who are unapologetic about their work, who are unafraid. I mean, although fear is inherited in us and I think that's okay, but that, that we are okay with being afraid, but we're also okay, more than okay with not being afraid and to have the courage to do what's necessary. So no, I, I really wanted to say thank you from the bottom of my heart for having you on. And or is there a, any uh, way for people to uh, follow you on social media, websites and your work? Wow. Um, yes, so if you just Google my name, you'll find me. <laughs> I am Googleable <laughs> and Googleable. Oh yes. But um, on Instagram, I am in, uh, Refugenius, 
which is R-E-F-U-G-E-N-I-U-S. I'm also on Facebook as my whole Lao name. Um, so it would be great. Let's connect and I would be happy to make new friends. Yeah, well, thank you so much for your time. I look forward to hearing more amazing work uh, from you. I hope that uh, I hope that when this pandemic is once and done for, all, I don't know for how long, but that uh, once we return to a sense of normalcy that we'll see wonderful creative things from you. And I look forward to seeing that come to fruition. And I'd be happy to attend one of your uh, shows that you created, or if you're doing a spoken word performance, or if you're, you know, holding a seminar for younger yeah. folks. I would like to be there for all of that. And I love Minneapolis. Yeah. I love the Twin Cities. It's a, it's a wonderful city. Yeah, come visit me. We'll, 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 we'll kick it. We'll go to all <laughs> places. We'll oh, go awesome. to all places. Absolutely. We will certainly do that. And I would love to get some Lao Mung food as well. Yes, 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 yes. I would love right. that. So we'll talk again soon. Thank you so much. Thank you, Randy. Well, that is all for today. Thank you for listening. And be on the lookout for future episodes. So follow me on The Bunby Chronicles on Facebook. Or you can follow me on Instagram at bunby underscore chronicles. Thank you again and looking forward to sharing more with you.